You are listening to the Pro Ecclesia podcast from the Truett Church Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Greetings from the Truett Church Network. Uh, today's podcast is a little bit of a special episode. We'll have several of these upcoming over the next few weeks. Today's episode was filmed in partnership with our friends at the Pastors Common. You can find the Pastors Common on Facebook. You can find it, uh, their podcast, anywhere podcasts are found. The Pastors Common is a group of young uh, emerging adult ministers in and around Texas and beyond that's doing great work to connect and resource young ministers together. Um, David Miranda is part of their group and partnered with True Church Network to record several uh, videos and podcasts. Today you will hear David Miranda and Dr. David Wilhite visiting about how the early church and New Testament writers read the Old Testament, particularly how they viewed theophanies and why that matters. Thank you for joining today. Today we'll be discussing theophanies, and so I want to thank you, Dr. Wilhite, for joining us for this conversation. I want to quickly define for our viewers what a theophany is. Uh, Essentially, this word means appearance. So it comes from two Greek words, theo, meaning God, and phineo, meaning appearance. So this is God appearing. And for our conversation today, this is more specifically God himself appearing or being a visual manifestation of himself in the Old Testament. So him showing himself to characters in the Old Testament. And so you've been doing some research, some studies on how this theophany is essentially Jesus revealing himself in a visual way to characters in the Old Testament. For me, this is important because it reveals that Uh, God is present in his creation. He isn't just a God that sets everything into motion and then forgets about his creation, uh, but he's someone who is uh, present in his creation. And so if you could please elaborate for us uh, just how the early church would view this, Uh, what was their... um, what was their perception of these theophanies and how did they read scripture in light of them? Sure. Well, maybe maybe as background, it would help you to know like, where I'm coming from with this is a research project that I'm working on. I'm, I'm co-authoring it with a, a New Testament scholar named Adam Wynn. And what we're, we've come to realize is in the, late, the early church, but the post-New Testament era, all early Christians believed exactly what you just described, that when you see God appear in the Old Testament, It's almost the opposite of what we modern Christians tend to think. A lot of modern Christians, whether they're just practicing believers or professional scholars, they tend to assume that that's God, uh, the Father in the Old Testament, and that really Jesus is foreshadowed or prophesied, but Jesus doesn't appear until the Gospels of the New Testament. Well, the early church is the exact opposite. Any appearance of God in the Old Testament was God the Son, the pre-incarnate Jesus. So what our... Uh, while, while that's not news, if anyone studies ancient Christian history, you would see that. What we're trying to do in our research, though, is trace that backwards. And we actually think that many, not necessarily all, but many New Testament authors are portraying Jesus in that exact way. So famous example would be John. Uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. So the divine name, Yahweh, I am. Uh, Jesus is claiming that. But we think we can find it in other New Testament writers, even so-called low Christology writers. Uh, we, th- we think it's, it's ubiquitous and that so that should set the standard for how we read these Old Testament appearances of God. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even in John, you went to John, uh, where in John 12, it describes uh, how Jesus was who appeared to Isaiah, for instance, in Isaiah 6. And so could you, uh, I guess maybe starting with Genesis, uh, one of the first uh, theophanies that we see is uh, God walking with man, uh, Genesis chapter 3, in the cool of the day. Yep. And so what, um, in the view of the early church, what would they have seen there as, uh, as God, Yahweh, walking with man? What would that have looked like for them? Um, or how did... Um, because I know that they were looking for the Messiah from the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. And so now that they have the revelation, which I guess epiphany is that word that is a revelation. Yep. So now they, they have this revelation of God in Jesus. They're going back and they're seeing Jesus there with them. Correct. So could you elaborate on that? Too? Exactly. So that's what's so tricky for us Christians who believe that God is triune. When you read the Old Testament, uh, when God says, let us make man and our image. Is this Father, Son, and the Spirit, us right. having a, a conversation? Mm-hmm. You know, not, not necessi- the language doesn't necessarily mean that in, in Genesis. So we have to admit as Christians that the people from, say, Moses' day, David's day, whoever, would not have understood God as triune. Uh, and yet, as you said, Christians who now look back can't help but see this as Jesus. No. So when you talk about any specific example like Genesis 3, God walks in the garden, or more precisely, the, the divine name, Yahweh, right, walks in the garden. So early Christians assume that this is not yet an incarnation. Um, God has decided to be manifested visibly to his creatures to, so that we can have a relationship with him. Sure. But it's not a permanent incarnation. And yet, who better is going to be the person to show up, appear, than the one who ultimately will appear and be incarnate permanently with us. So, uh, so yes, if Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel, uh, the early church is assuming every time God is with us here, sort of in a imminent way, right in the garden on Mount Sinai, wherever that's, they always assume that's the pre-incarnate Jesus. Well, it's important to highlight too, that it's more than anthropomorphic, uh, writing, right? It's not just, Oh, the hand of God stretches or, you know, it's actual physical manifestations, uh, of, of God. And so, yeah, it is important to stress that now again, early Christians, uh, who, who are trained in philosophical thinking and all that are pretty careful here Instead of using the word physical or material manifestation, they're going to stick with visible okay. manifestation. That's good. Because That's it's good. still not yet flesh. Sure. Okay. Um, so when God is going to appear, as we said, who better to do it? But you're right. Why, why did God appear as a human sure. or in human form? Um, no one ever explains why, but the, it seems to be anticipating when God would finally appear as human. Now, and you can't say that God always had a physical body because sometimes God shows up like a pillar of cloud, sometimes like a pillar of fire, right. a burning bush, I mean, right. a, a smoldering pot, right? There's all yeah. these weird theophanies. Sure. All of them are God appearing visible, and yet the times, in any of those cases, the, as I said, the early church is assuming it, those are Christophanies to be fully realized in Jesus. Amen. Well, I think you mentioned several of them, but I think it'd be good for us to kind of break down some further. Okay, um, sure. So I, I appreciate what you said about physical manifestations not necessarily being the case always. But uh, in Genesis chapter 18, we do see uh, Abraham being visited by the Lord, right? Yahweh. Yep. And then two other men. 
Um, what's interesting about that particular passage, which the whole thing is weird to me, but, uh, but we see that, uh, the Lord or this, this man, I guess that appeared to him, uh, speaks to him about his wife, about her conceiving, and she also listens to him. So it's not like it was just him imagining something or it was something that he was formulating in his mind or hallucinating. There were other, uh, human beings that were able to listen in on this conversation. And so, um, so yeah, no, I, I think, um, I, for for the audience, uh, could you kind of walk us through that particular narrative of uh, what took place there in Genesis eighteen? Yeah, sure. That's what, yeah, that is one of those bizarre ones because it starts off saying three men appeared to Abraham mm-hmm. outside of his tent at the Oaks of Mamre. So these are just men, right? But clearly they're not. There's something more, and Abraham addresses them uh, as as Lord. And it is the Lord, Yahweh, who speaks back to Abraham. So he calls him Adonai, right? The Lord. The first Adon- time, that's yes. right. Uh-huh. Which could be an honorific title, but you then you find out it is Yahweh who speaks to Abraham. So out of these three men, and it, it would be really interesting or maybe, maybe tempting to say, well, here's the Trinity. All three of them show up. That's not how the early church does it. Again, the Father never actually appears for the early church. And that's, that's based on John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God has revealed him to us. But I think, can I make a quick pause there? Because I think the Mormon faith would take this particular passage and say, oh, that's Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit made manifest. They're separate bodies. Uh, So I think it's important to highlight that as well. Yes, and I have deep respect for our Mormon believers who are devout, but this is, again, a pretty major break with Christianity. Mm -hmm. It's it's not just that interpretation of that passage, but that idea. There's, There's not three gods in Christianity. There's one God even though God chooses to appear fully in his son and send his spirit into our hearts, et cetera. So yeah, when you read the rest of what happens in Genesis, it's the other two men, and then they're called angels, who go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're clearly angels. It's not the father and the spirit or something, but the one who was in the middle, they're always depicted in icons. The one in the middle is always Christ, the one who spoke with the name, uh, when it says Yahweh spoke to Abraham. That again was not the father, but the pre-incarnate son. It's interesting in that particular passage where Yahweh or this man that appears to, to Abraham speaks of Yahweh uh, or speaks of himself in the third person too. Um, that could be uh, an allusion to how Christ will speak t- about himself, right? About the father, uh, yep. you know, in the New Testament. So I think you kind of see a precursor or kind of like, like this is what's going to take place in the New Testament, but coming back to it, you kind of see that take place. Well, that's that's exactly right. It's good insight there because it it, it gets really maybe not complicated, but counterintuitive that this God who appears to Abraham, Moses, etc., still talks about another God. Right. Uh, so you find out in Exodus three that it was actually an angel of the Lord who appeared in the burning bush. Mm-hmm. But then from the burning bush, Yahweh speaks. So, and Moses asks him his name and he tells him it's Yahweh. So this is Yahweh speaking, who also speaks of God as if the angel of the Lord were Yahweh. And yet the angel of the Lord can also speak of, we would say, in a, you know, later Christian insight of it's the son speaking of God, the father. And this happens many times. There are many times where you have a surprising sort of angel of the Lord seems to be the Lord. Yeah. And yet also tells you what the Lord sent him to do, right. et cetera. In that particular narrative, you talked about the two angels going to Sodom. Uh, then in, I think, Genesis 19, 24, 
where um, it mentions Yahweh sending fire from Yahweh from right. heaven. Right. So again, he speak. So it's like he's here. Maybe he stayed in a theophany or a, in a, in that state, and he sends fire from. So it's almost like two different persons, but sending fire. And so I, f- I found that interesting in that particular passage as well. Right. Yeah, it is the Lord who sends down the fire, but it is the two angels who go as witnesses to see what's right. happening in right. Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. Right. So could you, a question I have is um, this word Elohim, for instance, in Genesis 1, uh, mm-hmm. the creator, and you alluded to this already, where it's the word is plural. Yeah. You know, uh, and then in Genesis 18, uh, here we use Yahweh. And that's uh, singular. Whenever he's he's you know bowing down, he's singularly bowing down to this one Yahweh. Even though there are three characters there, he's bowing down to the one that's Yahweh right. singularly. So, um, what is the uh, the thought there behind this word Elohim? Uh, could could this have been kind of uh, an introduction for us of the Triune God, or uh, what is your take on that? Yeah, well, again, what, what I think we have to be careful in, in admitting is no one in, in the ancient Israel could have seen God as triune. There was, there was just, there was never a statement, God is three persons in one essence, like you have later. Yeah. And yet, uh, that, what you point out is correct, that God, uh, singular would be El yeah. in Hebrew, and Elohim is plural. But what's uh, maybe confusing to us or unexpected to us is when you have this plural noun, it's almost all, always spoke used with a, a singular verb. So it doesn't say Elohim, they do this. It's Elohim, he does this. So there is one God. Yeah. Israel's clear on this in the Shema from Deuteronomy, right? Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. So there's only one God, and yet God seems to be uh, a plurality of, in some way, right? So even the word for water in Hebrew is plural. It's always plural because waters are too complicated. There's not a singularity (laughs) in water. Sky, heavens are always plural, right? The sky Mm -hmm. is a pluriform thing. So there already seems to be this sort of nascent way of thinking of God. Even though there's one God, God is still Elohim. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, to your to your point earlier, uh, you mentioned the way I think we the way we read scripture today is us wanting to go to the text and see what the original audience would have understood by it. But right. then for them, I mean, they're the original audience, right? So right. Um, they are coming to it and now looking at the Old Testament, trying to see Jesus, right? Um, so how how is it different for us now um, than it would be for them back then? So I think Christians intuitively do this, but uh, a lot of ministers in particular, Bible teachers, you go to seminary, you get trained to do this thing you talked about, about look for original context, mm-hmm. which I agree. You don't mm-hmm. try to impose what you think is happening in the text as, uh, you know, as someone from 2,000 years later. You really want to try to dig out what did the text say to its original audience. So if you're trying to do that, it's very tempting to... Go get seminary training. Learn that you just read the Old Testament in a Jewish light. Don't put, I was told by my seminary professor, Old Testament prof, don't find Jesus in the Old Testament. His Mm -hmm. name ain't on the page. (laughs) Wait till he shows up in the New Testament. Don't, you know, don't isogete him back into there. Yes. And I appreciate the sentiment of trying to let the the, the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. And... I think we cannot help as Christians to look back, though, and say, well, um, we don't want to make the mistake that you put God as this 
Old Testament, angry, vengeful desert God who demanded blood sacrifices. That's that father God is mean. But then the son God showed up and was self-sacrificial and loving. I mean, that's not at all how the New Testament itself reads the Old Testament. Certainly not how early Christians read it. So um, why, where we might be different today is if we've sort of had a centuries of people training us to think, be careful not to put Jesus into the Old Testament. Well, you're sort of left with this duplicitous reading of the Bible, and that's, right. never, how the, that's never how the New Testament reads itself in light of the Old Testament. Uh, a question that I have uh, also based on something you brought up earlier, uh, just the different ways uh, these theophanies or these manifestations came to be, the burning bush. There was one uh, where it's the angel of the Lord, right? Uh, right. We, hear, we see that over and over throughout the Old Testament. Very common, right. Um, could you explain that as well? Um, yeah, explain and, it, or, sure. Or, uh, yeah, uh, kind of walk us through uh, the angel of the Lord, ways he's uh, he was presented, um, maybe some instances where he did interact with other characters in the Old Testament. Yeah. Well, the angel of the Lord is one of the more common characters in the Bible, but we don't think of him as a character in the Bible because he's never given a name. Right. Uh, he shows up at the burning bush. He shows up, uh, well, even before that, I should have backed up to Abraham, to Hagar. He comes later to uh, Samson's parents, to Gideon, jo Joshua. He's mentioned in several Psalms and prophets. He seems to be this warrior angel figure who has a flaming sword, and he is the one who does God's work on behalf of Israel. And most curiously, he's also called Yahweh. And so he can talk about he's here to do what God sent him to do, and then people call him Yahweh, and the scripture records Yahweh said back to the people, but of course it's the angel of the Lord doing this. So that's one of the more common ways that even ancient, ancient Jews would have tried to see, oh, maybe this angel is the Lord just in a, in a theophany, in an appearance that people would understand as an angel or something. Um, and what's still tough to explain is when this angel is the Lord who appears at theophany and still speaks of the Most High God. Right, this third person almost uh, way yeah, of speaking. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So that's where early Christians are easily, easily able to say, oh, that angel of the Lord, that is the pre-incarnate Christ. Right. One of my favorite uh, angel of the Lord moments, uh, Joshua 5, where uh, they're about to go into Jericho. Uh, Joshua sees this man with the right. sword, right? Yep. And he asks him, who are you? Are you on our side <laughs> or are you on the enemy side? He's like, no, neither. Yeah. I'm the commander of the armies of the angel uh, of, of the Lord. Yeah. Uh, and so I just find that so interesting because a lot of times we want to uh, make God fit into our story, but really God has his own uh, own agenda and we have to fit into his story. And so I just find that beautiful how that, that takes place. Yeah, that's yeah. a good example. Um, a couple other times, uh, maybe you can help me clarify this too. Daniel chapter 12, where okay. we see... Uh, Michael, right? Yeah. Uh, some might say that that might have been uh, a theophany right. as well. And so maybe Calvin might have used that to say uh, that was a Christophany there. Right. But also the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses could potentially use it to say, well, see, he's just a created being as well. Mm -hmm. So what are, your, what are your thoughts when, for instance, an angel is given a name, for instance, how is how is that different then from the angel of the Lord? Yeah, great question. Because my understanding is even scholars who focus on Daniel are divided on how best to interpret this. So you so to back up, you have Daniel nine, where the Son of Man, one like a Son of Man, to be 
precise, comes to the Ancient of Days, and this throne is described as this magnificent throne with a rainbow around its splendor, and the Son of Man approaches uh, to the throne, uh, like a Son of Man, um, uh, comes to the Ancient of Days. And, you know, Daniel is uh, one of those tough texts to decipher. Oh, There's even sure. Greek copies of Daniel that may be as old as some of our Hebrew copies. It says, in, and this is not the apocryphal editions, in the Greek copy of Daniel, it says, he came, the Son of Man came as the Ancient of Days. Mm-hmm. And then he sits on the throne, he judges. I mean, this is, this is, this is apparently a messianic figure. Now, later in Daniel, uh, you're going to have the, the actual prophecy of Messiah coming. And then you have Michael show up, and Michael, whose name means, I think, something about God reigns, right? So the reign of God, El, so that one singular God. So the question is, is Daniel, uh, sorry, is Michael in, in, in the angel of the Lord, or is he an angel of the Lord? Is he to be equated with the Son of Man, who's a heavenly figure, or is the Son of Man equated with the messianic figure? Now, the good news is when we get into later Christian times, Christ, like the New Testament and early Christian interpretation, just sort all this out for us. Michael is an archangel, but not the angel. And even then, you asked a great question about it for Jehovah's Witnesses and others. Angels are created beings, so they're not God. The angel of the Lord, if he's an angel, is not God. Now, that's not at all how the early Christian church or throughout Christian history. Christian history has said, yes, the second person of the Trinity appeared on earth as God's angel, the captain of all the armies. But he was not actually a created angel. I mean, angel just means messenger. So it's using that word in a, uh, you know, it's taking the, the dual meaning of that word. He is appearing like an angel. He is an angel. He's the messenger of the Lord, but he also is the Lord. He's different from all these other angels. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Um, well, I, I really do appreciate you uh, having this conversation with me because I didn't realize how much I did uh, see uh, these theophanies as Father God. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so it's it's so uh, beautiful to see just how planned out this whole thing was uh, with with Jesus uh, uh, in the Old Testament being made manifest. Uh, a couple more um, questions, uh, for instance, Melchizedek. Yeah. Could you speak on Melchizedek? Uh, yeah. who, who was he? Uh, I guess purpose behind that. Um, well, again, I'm not an Old Testament scholar, but I'll tell you what I understand the debate to be for when Melchizedek shows up in Genesis, Abraham offers him a tithe right? And then Melchizedek in turn offers him bread and wine. Yeah. Well, of course, to early Christians, this looks like another appearance, pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I would have to, I think we have to admit in Genesis, there's nothing that signals that this is anything more than a special guy, right? He's a priest of some sort. His name means king of righteousness. So somehow or another, Abraham recognizes him as connected to God, a spokesman on behalf of God. But again, once, so, so that's in Genesis, once you get to the Christian period, the book of Hebrews makes a big deal out of Abraham uh, encountered Melchizedek, and Melchizedek was already a priest, a higher order than who came later than Abraham, Moses and Aaron and the law, those priests, because right, those priests are no more, right? The temple does not continue. Uh, and so what the author of Hebrews is able to do from a Christian perspective is say, look, we have a high priest like after the order of Melchizedek. Now, then, in early Christian imagination, you can see where people would take this. And not just Christian. There's all sorts of intertestamental texts and what's called pseudepigraphal texts, apocryphal texts, and Jewish writings where Melchizedek features prominently, even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which have no Christian influence at all. The, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls has Melchizedek be this sort of messianic figure who's going to come, come at the end of time. And he came from heaven. He was a heavenly figure. So in the midst of all of that, 
most Christians look back and see, oh, this Melchizedek figure, this, this name, King of Righteousness, that was just the only name that was given at that time, to Ab- that particular scene to Abraham. But clearly that was the pre-incarnate Jesus. No, I, th- I think what, uh, what you mentioned too is, is very important, right? This uh, giving him honor. Uh, also, you see that with the angel of the Lord with uh, Joshua 5, yeah. where he actually worships him, yep. which was different than what other angels demand. In fact, they reject any type of worship. But right. here you see the angel of the Lord receiving worship. Right. And in fact, he asked him to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground, which is the same thing we see with the burning bush. Right. Uh, and so here we have Yahweh and the angel of the Lord both showing us uh, the same thing taking place. Yeah, exactly. This is where I, I sympathize with the what we talked about earlier, the temptation, or, or not the temptation, but the need to be careful and not impose too much on the text. Ancient Jews would not have seen a Trinity or a second person of the Trinity here. And yet, as you say, uh, so, so what, what some scholars will kind of try to be cautious with is say, maybe this kind of worship is veneration. It's the kind of, you would use the same word. It means to bow the knee in Greek. You would use this sort of bowing to a king or a royal person or an important person, or a god. Well, I think there's some of that that happens. Um, I think David, there's a statement where David bows before Jonathan. There, there's, there's times where you see this sort of royal honor being given. But when Moses has to take off his sandals because this is holy ground, that, that angel of the Lord is claiming something different. And when it happens again with Joshua, the angel of the Lord, again, seems to be a separate category. Yeah. Well, one last one, just because I, I have you here. Um, sure. And it's a it's a big one, too. Uh, Isaiah 6. Right. Right. Where uh, if you could, I saw the Lord. Yes. And so if you could walk us, walk us through that as well, because this is, again, an illusion from John 12, you know, going back and looking and speaking of now you see Jesus being this revelation Right. And again, this is one of those, it's a great example because it's, there's only one person there, Yahweh on the throne in the temple. Now there's two seraphim there, right? Which we could talk about angels, seraphim, cherubim. There seem to always be two, uh, like on the Ark of the Covenant. So the appearance to Isaiah causes Isaiah to fall down, fearing for his life. I have seen the Lord. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Everyone knows if you see God, you die, right? Even Moses was told you can't see the Lord's face. And yet, to go back to Moses, Moses sees God all the time in mm-hmm. the angel of the Lord, in the burning bush, and yeah. the coming down in a cloud on Mount Sinai. It says every time he saw the Lord. Yeah. So when you get to John, who's now going to interpret this as Jesus, it's clear, as, as it, I said in, earlier about John 1.18, so John 1.17, the prologue, mentions Moses and the law, and then 1.18 says, no one has seen God at any time. Is there what, a contradiction? Yeah. Right, what a bizarre thing to say. Didn't yeah. Moses see God? Didn't right. Isaiah see God? Well, mm-hmm. the answer is, the very next phrase of Moses one, uh, John 1.18, the only begotten God, he has revealed the Father to us. So every time we've seen God, then that must have been the, the Son, the begotten God, who shows us the Father. It's like, here you go. Yeah. yeah. And, and I probably I should, I, I would uh, be remiss if I didn't mention that there is a danger in thinking this way. If you think that God the Father must always remain invisible and God the Son is the only one who can be visible, you end up uh, with the, the heresy known as subordinationism or Arianism. You end up saying the Son is less than God, the God, the God Son can change, the God Father is transcendent. And that's, that is an understandable way of reading these texts. But Christians ultimately decided, no, it was proper for God the Son to be the one sent and appear to us. 
but he's equal to the father, yeah. co-eternal. Yeah, it's like we way. can't put him in a box. Exactly. You know, like, uh, yes, the son has certain characteristics, but at the same time that there's no reason why the father, you know, couldn't reveal himself as right. well. So. Right. In fact, it's Augustine who actually is the first one to really be nervous. I, I do early Christian stuff, so I won't take a long time with Augustine. But, you know, uh, around 400, he's worried that Christians are doing this Jesus, this theophany, theophany as Christophany too much. And he's worried this exact sort of heresy will creep up. And so he goes through all of these examples. And every time he's constantly saying in the burning bush and the appearance to Joshua, he's trying to say, look, this could be the father or that could be the father. But he always knows he's sort of stretching like most Christians don't think that. And he finally gets to the book of Daniel where the son of man appears and comes to the ancient of days. And you see the ancient of days. So you see for Augustine. You can see the father. You can see the son. They can choose to appear if they want to. Right. So he's he's uh, feels better now that he's clarified. They are fully yeah. equal, even yeah. if they take on different roles. Yeah. Well, it's easy for me to, well, easier for me to picture God as uh, taking on human form, like or even like an angel, right? The angel of the Lord. But this pillar of fire is so different. Right. So, so how do you see Jesus in this pillar of fire? Uh, Good. Yeah. Well, you don't exactly see right, him the right. way he will I look guess, later. Sure. Yeah. Just as you don't see him on Mount Sinai, mm -hmm. but I guess see or how do you find him in that? Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. So the in either so in either case, Mount Sinai, the Lord Yahweh comes down, dark cloud filled with lightning, sound of thunder and trumpets and all of that. And at one point, I think it's Exodus twenty nine, Moses has gone back up with the elders and Aaron, and they see his feet, or it sort of clarifies the place where he was standing, and and they say, you know, we can't behold him. Like it's still too much to behold that there must be this God figure in there. And yet God is so overwhelming in this cloud, this, this, this thunder cloud, same with the pillar of cloud and day pillar by fire by night. You don't have seeing an anthropomorphic, like a humanoid shape. And yet you're told it's the same God. And so I think we're, I think it's probably important that scripture does that. We don't want to make God in our image, mm -hmm. even though God made us in his image and God came to take on this flesh, God will always transcended this. So um, the way I think about it, I don't know if this is helpful, but when I look at my image in the mirror, uh, that image in the mirror is only two-dimensional, very flat. And yet it's accurate. It's correct. Um, but if you really want to know me, you got to get out of that two-dimensional space, and I'm much more three-dimensional. I've got you know a story behind me. So when God made us in God's image, we are an accurate image of God, and yet still only, well, maybe three-dimensional, four-dimensional. But God is so much more than this. God couldn't be encapsulated in, in, in human form until he chooses to join himself to the flesh in the incarnation, which is, so you take, if you could just wrap around about our, our mind around the mystery that God is this pillar of fire, couldn't be held in a temple, and yet chose to come down into the temple, and yet chose to take on flesh, I mean, this this is something we'll never wrap map our wrap our minds around or explain, yeah. but it's uh, I mean one of the dearest teachings and and mysteries that we hold to. Yeah, well, it's how Hebrews says we we have a high priest who can sympathize with us. So he himself, even in fact, uh, coming through the line of Adam, you know, becoming the second Adam, yep. and uh, and being our propitiation. What do you appreciate the most about these theophanies? Well, the fact that we would never understand God if God, if no one has seen God at any time, if God is invisible, we would never be able to relate to God unless God 
chose to come to us. God chose to appear. So what I appreciate is this is the definition of the gospel. This is mm-hmm. grace. This is God's love who wants to have a, a, a relationship with us. Amen. Amen. One, one final thought too is uh, with deism, you have this God that just kind of creates everything and just puts it into motion. Yeah. Uh, but now we see through these theophanies, Jesus, I guess, working in his creation from the, from the beginning. That's right. If, yeah, if deism says God is the cosmic watchmaker who's kind of spun this world and then steps back, and in a modern uh, enlightenment way of thinking, right, the, God, the world doesn't seem to need God if science has its way of explaining gravity oh, and, right. the, you know, or, you know the, 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 the rotation of the stars and all of that. And yet what the scriptures show us is that God did not choose to stand back apart from his creation. God, God entered in and Amen. got his hands dirty. Amen. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor.